Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 72. And uh, as you're finding your place, and Russ, thank you for your prayer. I'm actually going to come back to some of the things he said in his prayer. Clearly, Russ has been studying Psalm 72 uh, in his own, uh, for his own uh, personal uh, devotions. I wanted to ask this question before we begin this morning. Um, trying to think about the fact that we here we are towards the end of March, going a whole year, um, week in, week out, Thursday morning, 6.30, studying God's Word and making sure we're ready this morning. I, I had this thought in my own head. I wonder uh, what the makeup of this room is in regards to people that have been here, not just week after week this year, but year after year. So if you have been uh, coming to Amen two or more years, two or more years, just raise your hand. If you've been coming to Amen two or more years, all right, all right. If you've been coming to Amen five or more years, raise your hand. Wow. Okay, if you've been coming to Amen ten or more years, raise your hand. Whew, still half the room. If you've been coming to, the, the, to Amen fifteen or more years, raise your hand. Wow. That's, that, is, that is amazing. You know, a while back, a, lo- a long while back, it's probably five years ago, when Barton and Mitchell Moore and I worked working to get young adult men here, um, and we had reserved a couple of tables, um, uh, there, was this, there was this dear sweet guy who uh, I think we accidentally reserved the table that had been his, he and his guy's table here at Amen, and uh, apparently that was a no-no, I didn't know that, but in in, in this guy was trying to be gracious, but he was really frustrated, and he was trying to be nice to me, and he said to me, this is about five years ago, he's like, he said, he said Todd, we, we have been, I said, is this your table? I was like, Todd, we've been coming here, I've been coming here, I think he said, I've been coming here for 25 years, this has been my table. And I remember thinking, wow, I think Amen's only 22 years old. <laughs> so if you've arrived three years before Amen at this table, that's your table. You can keep it. You predate amen, then that can happen. Um, I say, I ask that question because of this. Um, Sometimes when we go week in, week out, we can approach our time in the Word without uh, without recognizing um, that we might be numb because of either distraction, uh, sin that we need to confess, or we're just tired. And what I want to do is I want to take just 30 seconds, and uh, I just want all of us... To, uh, to close our eyes and just whatever it is, um, whatever it is that might distract you from receiving what God has this morning, whether it's sin, right now you just need to confess, or whether it's distraction or worry, you just need to hand over to the Lord, or whether it's just weariness and tiredness that you need to say, Lord, revive me in this moment. Let's just take 30 seconds and say, Lord, you know my heart, uh, prepare me. Father, you've heard our prayers. We make them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's read uh, Psalm 72 of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. 
Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and, and the hills in, in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and may peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and that of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessing invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land and the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may the people blossom in the cities like grass in the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May the people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I appreciated uh, last week that David Bowen, when he, uh, when he structured the study of the psalm, he reminded us again of the importance of making sure that we do a good observation, good interpretation, and good application. One of the ways I like to think of it is in some questions that are framed by my favorite preacher, which is Alistair Begg. I love Alistair Begg's ability to exegete God's word, to apply it to a heart so well, and to have this amazing economy of words, and above all that, a really cool Scottish accent that makes you want to listen to the guy. But in all of that, he frames it in some questions that he said we ought to be asking when we come to God's Word. He says when we come to God's Word, we need to ask the right questions and not the wrong questions in our personal study, in our small group Bible studies, and even in larger studies like this. He says the, the right questions begin like this. What is the text actually saying? What is the text actually saying? And then not only that, to move on and go, and why is it in this place? Why is it in this place in history? Why is it in this place in our Bibles? Why is it in, the, in this place in this book? What is the text saying? Why is it in this place? And why is it saying it in this particular way? Why has God, in it, through the Holy Spirit, framed what we're reading today in this particular way, in this place, so that we can understand what it's saying? And then, and I love that David brought this up, but Alistair Begg says it's always important to ask yourself, what's surprising about it? We know that God is going to reveal in his word, it's a living and active word, there's something that it's actually saying, it doesn't change, but you can't mine the depths of it to the place where in this lifetime you would know everything that came out of this psalm. But there's something that God has for us that you will find surprising 
in this text every time as we engage it through the Holy Spirit. And then he says, Alistair Begg says, here's questions we don't want to ask. The wrong questions. The wrong questions look something like this. How does this passage make me feel? He says, that's not the right question. Well, maybe we're not interested in how it makes you feel. We need to know what it says, not how it makes you feel. Another wrong question. What does it remind me of that I would like to share with someone? He said, sometimes in our small group Bible studies, we're looking at the Word, and we immediately jump to that question. He's like, that's not the right question. Another wrong question. If I had been there, what would I have written? Well, sometimes we put that. This is what I'm thinking if I had been in that context. Or another wrong question. Is there anything in this that I would like to change? Not a good question. So right questions, wrong questions. Well, with that framework, with that in mind... What do we have here? First thing, we need to just frame it up, a scriptural introduction. Two things. One, the very beginning it says, of Solomon. And then the very end, verse 20 says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Uh, I'm going to make this simple for you. While there is some theological debate, uh, generally speaking, there there is one main thought that comes out of all this. And that is, this psalm is Solomon. He wrote it. But certainly, these are words that he must have heard from his father. In other words, uh, the apple hasn't fallen too far from the tree. Inspired by God, Solomon wrote these things, but these are certainly things that you can see of David. Now, why does it say then at the end of, of the psalm, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, when this is actually a psalm of Solomon? Well, the psalms are divided up into five books, And we know that because there's these five places where there's doxologies that seem to wrap up the collection of of psalms that were given. Probably at the time of Ezra, all of these things were organized. They were written before that, long before that, but kind of organized uh, at that point. And so this is the end of book two, chapter 42 through uh, 72 is book two. And it's wrapping up these first two books that are the prayers of David son of Jesse. And some of you are thinking, yeah, but Todd, Psalm 90, Psalm 110, you can start naming Psalms after Psalm 72 that are of David. What's he talking about? Well, this has to do, he says, the prayers. So mostly the, uh, the entreatings of God, the laments that David has, those prayers that David make have been organized in these first two books. And while there is a Psalm of Asaph, there is a Psalm of Solomon, mostly they're of David. So we don't want to have those things throw us off. They make sense in the context. um, And we don't need to worry about that. The other thing that's very fascinating, if you sometimes study in the NIV or the New American Standard, you'll notice that some of the verbs here are described a different way or put in a different tense than it's put in the ESV. And that is because the verbs that are used here in the Hebrew in this particular psalm kind of fall into two places. And it's, and it's hard sometimes in Hebrew to wonder, to know if they're in the imperfect tense or this other tense called the juicive tense. And let me make this simple for you as well. The imperfect tense reflects something that's in, per, that's, that's in the future, that it's going to happen. This will happen. So in other translations, it doesn't, says, it doesn't say, um, may he live long. It says he will live long. That's the imperfect the ESV has tended to go with the juicive tense, which it's just so hard to see in the Hebrew, which is this idea that there's a desire for this thing to happen. And you can see in this psalm the, that, that Solomon, there is both 
uh, in these words, reflecting of David's words, there's both this sense in which I know God will do this. Oh, God, please do this. So it's both of those things together, which is what those verbs are doing. So here in, in uh, uh, the ESV, over and over again, it says, may this happen, may this happen. Lord, please make it happen. And yet we know on this side of the cross, God is going to do those things, that he, this is going to happen. And this whole psalm is about the kingdom of God. Certainly about the kingdom of Solomon, kingdom of David, kingdom of Israel. But that's because the kingdom of Israel was a theocracy. That meant that, that, that God was over the whole, that, that, that worshiping the God of the Bible was that nation. It was defined by that. So the laws, the, the, the civil laws were defined by the fact that this nation truly was under God. Not in phrase, not in the deist way that our country was founded, but in, in God revealing himself, calling out these people and saying, you're going to be my people. And so it was a theocracy. So the kings that were put in place, Solomon, David, Saul, others, were supposed to stand in the place of God, administering what God would do as king over that nation. It was, this, it was a theocracy. Now, it wasn't fulfilled. It didn't work. And that was God's point. He wanted to show you. They said, we've got to have a king. Give us a king like every other nation has a king. And so God says, okay. Now, here are the rules for the king. And it didn't, you know, Solomon started out well, but he didn't end well. Because he's a man. And he couldn't possibly fulfill the place of God over these people. And so he, in, his, in the power and in the temptation, he struggled. It couldn't be fulfilled. And so this psalm, while it's, while it's a plea for Solomon to say, God, may you do this through me in this nation. Even Solomon knows, through the power of the Spirit, that there has to come a Messiah who will do this. That there cannot be hope simply in Solomon. There cannot be hope simply in this, in this theocracy that there has to be a hope in one that can actually deliver what's going on here. And for us, as we dive into uh, these, these five sections of this psalm, these six sections of the psalm, we need to think about our place and our citizenship in our country and on this earth. So even as Solomon was understanding, God, please do these things, but I know that I'm looking to a Messiah to do something, we need to, as we look over this psalm, to think clearly about our place in human history, our place in the nation in which God has placed us, and what that means for us. What is our citizenship? And we know, though we struggle sometimes in this country, and certainly our generation for the most part, we struggle maybe more than others have in convoluting our citizenship with the United States and our citizenship in the kingdom of God. And they are, they are not to be convoluted. Um, we have first and foremost our citizenship in the kingdom of God. We belong to Christ. As, as Russ prayed, we are sojourners. Or, as Paul put it, I love this, we're ambassadors. We are, we are actually citizens of the kingdom of God who have been placed in this country for this time to be ambassadors. So our, and you know how ambassadors works and how embassies work. Certainly a good ambassador loves and cares for the country in which he's placed. 
and truly understands and desires the best for that country in which he's placed. But you recognize that the embassy where he lives is actually, like the embassies in the United States, the, the, the embassy of, of England in, in Washington, D.C., that's actually English territory. That's not, that's not U.S. territory. So the home, the home of the ambassador actually physically belongs to the kingdom from where, from where he is, where, he, where he's a citizen. That's how our homes are supposed to be. They're not supposed to be American homes. They're supposed to be God's home. First and foremost, and, and we are good ambassadors to whatever country God has placed us. That's our citizenship. And so even our leadership needs to reflect that. So as we look at this psalm, our citizenship is in the kingdom of God and our leadership in our homes and outside our homes, in our workplaces, among our relationships, needs to reflect the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. So let's look, what does this look like, the, the, this kingdom, as Solomon describes it. In verses 1 through 4, he gives us the foundation of this kingdom. And as you look at the kingdom and the leader reflecting Christ in his kingdom, what is this foundation Two words stand out, certainly one word right away, righteousness appears there three times. That the foundation of this kingdom is to be righteousness. That is to be a rightness and a pureness as defined by God. So the kingdom of God, whether that is here in the theocracy that Solomon was trying to betray, or ultimately in the internal kingdom, when God returns and as Russ prayed, the holy city of God, the holy Jerusalem, that, we'll, that we are citizens of right now, in the in-between time, we in this place want to reflect in our homes and in our workplaces, in our relationships, the righteousness of, of God, the rightness, the rightness and purity. Not only that, but it, and we'll hit this a lot more later, but he talks about, about a justice, and look there in verse 3, it says, let the mountains bear prosperity. That word prosperity is the Hebrew word shalom. So justice that is defined by the wholeness God intended. So when you think of justice, we know that it means to be fair, to do what's deserved, but it's important that when we think of God's justice, that the definition of what's fair is defined by God's standards. So whatever God's standards are, we want to be fair to that standard. That's the justice and the righteousness of the kingdom of God. Well, he goes on and talks about the duration of this kingdom in verses 5 through 7. Notice that the duration of this kingdom, he uses words like this, that, that, the, uh, that all generations, every generation would be under this kingdom till the moon be no more. So Solomon is saying, may this kingdom last Forever, which obviously you can see right there that, that Solomon is not just talking about his kingdom. He knows he's not going to live forever. He knows that his kingdom cannot be forever. So he even is understanding the kingdom I'm ultimately talking about is God's kingdom. It will be a kingdom that will last. And it's the only kingdom that will last. The only kingdom that will ever last is God's kingdom. There's no, there's no form of government. There's no, there's no cultural system on this earth. There, if, if God, uh, if the Lord tarries for 500 more years, I just don't think that even our country will exist 
in the form maybe at all as it does today. And even though this country has, in, has endured for hundreds of years, it is not an everlasting kingdom. There's only one kingdom that's going to last forever. And so my allegiance, ultimately, it wants to be in a kingdom that is going to last forever. This reminds me of a, of a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, who's now in his 80s, and, uh, and 20 years ago, I think I've shared this with you before, last, I think I shared this with you last year, 20 years ago he came to me and he said, hey, I want to, uh, I want to talk with you, Todd, I want to talk with you about something to do uh, in the student ministries department, a way I want to invest. And I'm like, okay. So we sat down and talked at lunch and he was real frank. He said, Todd, I've been an entrepreneur a lot of my life and I've made great investments and I'm tired of investing in things that won't last. So I've decided in the last end of my life that I'm going to spend all my money investing in the kingdom of God because I know that will last. Which in some ways, from the earthly standpoint, doesn't look accurate, does it? Because that means he's going to spend his money away. <laughs> his return, will, he will not receive here on earth for the money that he's spending on the kingdom. And he went on to say, and this is how I want to do it. And it was very clear on this is what money I want to invest in God's work because I'm investing in the eternal kingdom in this. Notice, too, that word peace, shalom, in verse 3. That's something very important we're going to come back to. Shalom doesn't just mean to be at peace. It means wholeness. It means everything God intended in his created order. Let's continue. Verses 8 through 11. What is the extent of this kingdom? What is the expanse or extent of this kingdom? It says, may he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river, and here's some words that comes out. I want it to be from the river, and it's capitalized. That means the Euphrates River. That would have been the farthest understanding for, uh, for them east. Uh, they would have thought that was, that was the extent of what we understand the civilized world to be, is the Euphrates River, all the way to Tarshish, which had been out towards Spain, so the entire Mediterranean basin, and now, then down to Sheba and Seba, which would have gone as far south as they understood. So Solomon's saying, as far as I understand the world exists, I want this kingdom to go out. I want it ultimately to be all kings and all nations. Again, this has got to be more than Solomon. Certainly Solomon's kingdom extended in all those places, but it didn't extend all the way to Tarshish. It didn't, go, uh, it didn't, it didn't penetrate as far north as, as he would have liked. So he's speaking here about a kingdom that goes everywhere, that all peoples, everywhere, all nations would experience the kingdom of God. But in verse 8, look at that word dominion. It says in verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea. That's a Hebrew word that has made up of three consonants. So I actually don't know how to pronounce the Hebrew word because it has no vowel there. Um, but that word appears in a place that you all are familiar with, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. When God makes Adam, it says, let him have dominion, same Hebrew word, over the earth. And in Genesis 1, 26, we get what we call the cultural mandate. That God, when he created humanity, he said to us, we must be stewards over the entire earth. Over what God has created 
We are to be the ones who are to act as stewards to care for that. And that Hebrew word dominion actually means bringing under the authority of another. So when God says to to Adam, I want you to have dominion, what he says is, I want you to bring this earth that I've created under the authority of me. And Solomon here, when he's talking about the kingdom, about what God's kingdom, he says it's a kingdom that comes under the authority of another reflecting God himself. And so for us, what does that mean? As we carry out the cultural mandate in our home, in our city, in our world, in our country, we are to be those who, as we exercise dominion, it's this humility because we are seeking to bring dominion as one under the authority of another. We want to reflect God's authority in our home, God's authority. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to establish the created order God intended. Now this is where I think it gets surprising and interesting. So to be those men who reflect the kingdom of God, then what I'm supposed to do in my house, in my yard, in my workplace, in my relationships, in my city, is to seek the created order that God intended. That's why it says in Jeremiah to, the, to those who were exiled in Babylon, seek the shalom of the city, seek the wholeness of that city among those who are oppressing you. You try to seek their wholeness. So God is calling us to seek the wholeness of those around us. And that leads us into this experience of the kingdom. Verses 12 through 14. And this is where I want to camp out for a little while. Some of you are like, wow, we're flying through this. I'm going to get out of here early. Well, not too early. Because we're going to camp out a little bit in verses 12 through 14. The experience of the kingdom. Why would it that all the nations... Look at what it says at the end of uh, of verse 11. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Why in the world would all nations and all kings want to serve this king in this new kingdom? Is it because he's just powerful and he's going to over he's going to overtake them? He's going to he's going to you know uh, uh, suppress them, put them under his rule, under his iron fist? No. Look what it says in verse twelve. For because. He delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. Why is it that all nations and all kings would respond to this king? Because he is merciful and gracious. His dominion doesn't come with an iron fist to demand allegiance. It comes with mercy and grace for He delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. Caring as rust trade for the poor, the needy, and the weak. The kingdom of God, the experience of Solomon's kingdom was to be a kingdom in which justice and righteousness and shalom were worked for the poor and the needy and the weak for those who are under oppression and those under violence, as we'll look at, the, at verse 14. That was to be the kingdom of God. As we reflect the kingdom of God, brothers, we've got to do that too. 
that has to be the starting point, the, the experience of what it's like to be around us. Like, that's what we look like when we're out in the world. Now, I'm going to confess to you that I grew up at a time and a place in the church. Grew up in the church, grew up in great evangelical Bible-believing churches. I spent my last couple of years in a high school that was a Christian, uh, a Christian school. I went to college at Covenant College, Christian college. But I grew up in a time where we were really concerned in the church about the souls of people in the city. But I'm not sure we cared a whole lot about the bodies, the physical bodies of the people in my city. Now we cared about the unborn. We really did. I, I've, I've stood on a street in Greenville, South Carolina with a whole bunch of other people with a sign pleading for repentance regarding abortion. But I would, I would be remiss if I didn't confess to you that while I was pretty strong, a pretty strong opponent and still am, uh, just it breaks my heart uh, in regards to abortion. I didn't give a whole lot of thought to that poor inner city unwed mother whom I was saying, no, you've got to keep your child. I didn't give a whole lot of thought to the life of that child after, quote unquote, I had saved it from abortion. I just didn't think about it. I just never thought about that being a part of an expression of God's justice and righteousness, caring for the poor and the needy and the weak. I got when I read this, boy, that is right. I need to make sure that those who are under oppression, under violence, the unborn are taken care of. But I just didn't think about what it meant for that unwed mother to care for that child and what it would take. My church didn't either. And I don't, I don't know why that is, but I have some, I have some thought. And, and I, don't mean to, I don't mean to poke the bear this morning, um, especially the, the you know, hibernating 6.30 a.m. bear. You know, I don't want to poke that bear. So, so if it feels like that, please know this is, this is not my intention. I just want us to, to be laid bare before the Word of God. I just want us to, to be able to have the Word of God shape us, even in places we've, we haven't thought of or maybe we don't even want to. But I know there's a lot of tension right now in the church in America um, over, uh, frankly, raise the level of, of tension because of a big statement that was put out and signed by 7,000 pastors and church leaders called the Statement on Social, on Social Justice in the Gospel. And honestly, it was a response by one of my heroes in the faith against John MacArthur and, and his writers, against another hero in my faith, Tabiti Anyuebi, and a lot of his uh, leadership, in regards to, hey, are we displacing, are we displacing the gospel when we're trying to save souls, and instead displacing that for a gospel that just saves physical bodies, that just cares for social issues? Are we taking social issues and putting them above gospel issues? 
And I would have to confess to you, if you've read that statement, outside the context of where we are in the United States right now, I could probably agree with 95% of that statement. When I read it, I thought to myself, I, I don't think I disagree with this. What do I disagree with? I disagree with why it was written, and I disagree with that binary statement, social justice and the gospel. I just don't think that's biblical at all. It's, the question is, is it souls or physical bodies that God wants to care for? And I would say to you, as I understand God's word, and certainly here in, verse, in, uh, in, in Psalm 72, the Bible tells me, and Christ's life tells me, it's souls and physical bodies. It's both. Why do I say that? Well, Two main reasons, the incarnation of Christ and our glorification. The incarnation of Christ. God's decision to bring salvation came when he united himself in the second person of the Godhead to our humanity forever. Christ took on a physical body. And when we see him in heaven, Revelation tells us that we will know him by the scars. So he's been united to our humanity forever. And then when the Bible talks about our glorification, about what's going to happen to it, you know, our, our, our justification, our sanctification, and then our glorification, what happens to us ultimately, what's the final end of our salvation? That, that, as it says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, that our physical bodies will be raised and glorified. We won't just be floating souls up in it. We won't be turned into angels sitting on a, on a cloud playing a harp. Thank goodness. I can't think of anything more depressing than floating on a cloud playing a harp. But there'll be our physical bodies, not just our floating souls, are part of our glorification clearly. And, and actually, it's what makes Christianity stand out from, from every religion in the world. That there's truly a care for the physical body, the physical earth. And it, and it appears here in these verses. Look at what it says. For he delivers the poor and needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives, the lives, the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And then look what it says, that last phrase, and precious is their blood in his sight. And so, yes, Todd, you got it right when you were younger, when you, as you, and, and now when you speak out against abortion and you vote as best you can against abortion and you, and you, you do whatever you can to care for those who are helping those who need to have uh, their children in order not to abort them. Yes, Todd, it was great that you were caring for the, the blood that was precious in God's sight in those unborn children. But when they're born, Todd, and when they're five years old, and when they're 10 years old, and when they're 15 years old, will you remember that their blood is precious in my sight? So I would say, I, I don't think you can say souls and bodies and be a Christian. I don't think you can say 
gospel and social justice. I think the gospel always brings social justice. Christ himself didn't walk around <laughs> ministering to people saying, yeah, 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 I know you're blind. Yeah, 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 I know you've been bleeding forever. Yeah, yeah, I know you're, you're lame. Don't worry, in heaven it'll all work out. I just want to talk to you about your soul. I know you're hungry, but just listen to this sermon and it'll feed your soul. <laughs> no, he fed them. Cared for them. He even cared for those who had no care for him. Every time I read John 13, I'm struck by this. Jesus wrapped a towel around his waist and washed the nasty, dirty feet of Judas, who would betray him. I also think about this. George Robertson has said this, and it's, it's had a pretty big impact on me. He said, you know, we want to give to the poor, want to care for the needy. And then you think, yeah, but gosh, if I, I have given to this person or I've given to help them and they're just, nothing's happening. They go and they waste it and then they're back again asking for more. And certainly we want to help those not just by giving them fish but teaching them how to fish. But then George said this, yet and I thought about it, me. Yeah, Todd, how many times have you gone to the Lord and pleaded for grace, pleaded for forgiveness, pleaded for him to restore you in salvation, and he gave it to you. He lavished grace upon you. And then how many times, Todd, were you back two days later having taken that grace and ruined it in sin <laughs> and said, Lord, I need, I need more, I I. I ran out of it. <laughs> I need more. And what does he do? He gives it to you again. The kingdom of God, the experience of the kingdom of God is to help those who are oppressed, exploited, to help those who, who are, are in danger of disregard for their life. Their blood is precious in his sight. It is both souls and bodies. That is the kingdom of God. That is the gospel together. Both things. And that leads us to the blessing of the kingdom, verses 15 through 17. Notice, too, that even as the blessing comes down in verses 15 through 17, that it is both a physical blessing and a, a, a spiritual blessing. We read there at the beginning that there's going to be, he's, he's praying, may there be abundance of grain in the land, and the tops of the mountains may it wave, may we see the physical abundance poured out on your people, and then may the people blossom in their cities. May they be prosperous in their cities. May they enjoy shalom. But then in verse 17, speaking about God himself, may his fame continue as long as the sun. May the people bless him. May they be worshiping God. So it is both spiritual and physical, this great blessing. And then that leads us into this amazing doxology in the glory of the kingdom, verses 18 through 19. And this doxology uh, represents the end of, the, of book 2, Certainly the end of this psalm, but also the end of all these psalms. And the whole point is here, oh my goodness, as we look at the kingdom of God, as we understand who God is and the Messiah that is to come, it bursts forth in praise and worship to God. 
And so the psalmist just says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And notice that it says right after that, he alone, God alone gets the glory. May God alone get the glory in, in my home. May God alone get the glory in my workplace. May God alone get the glory in my city. I told you I, I, uh, I grew up... Um, I grew up at a time that I actually loved, and sometimes I'm maybe like you, I reminisce. I mean, it probably wasn't as good back then as I think it was, but it seems like right now it was, you know, when you look back. And, uh, and you know, it was in high school and college that uh, I, was, I was in, in the 80s, I was in high school and college, and man, the Reagan years just seemed awesome to me. Now again, I might have a whole diluted idea of this whole thing, but it just... I, I grew up at a time when it felt great to connect to all that and to see, it, it almost felt like God's blessing was being somehow poured out in, in, in certain ways. Well, now I understand a little bit more my own immaturity and maybe how my own uh, upbringing and, and uh, made it so that my citizenship in heaven and my citizenship in this country got convoluted in a way that it never should have done and it actually made me a poor citizen of the country, and it made me a poor citizen of heaven. It'd be better for me to understand that I'm an ambassador in this country. I become a better citizen here, and I become a better citizen of heaven. But in light of that, I was drawn to this quote in this moment. Sometimes in the 80s, uh, at a great convention of the National Association of Evangelicals, right after Ronald Reagan had spoken, and the whole auditorium erupted in cheers. National Association of Evangelicals listening to Ronald Reagan speak, whole place erupted in cheers. Chuck Colson followed him. Chuck Colson gets up there and he says this simple phrase. The kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. And I would say to you brothers, not only does it not arrive on Air Force One, but let me tell you how it does arrive. It arrives when Christ's ambassadors, you, show up at the workplace. It arrives when Christ's ambassadors, you, show up in those relationships. The kingdom of God arrives when Christ's ambassadors, you, show up in a city. That's how the kingdom of God arrives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it shapes us and forms us. Father, thank you that you are constantly sanctifying us. You're teaching us more and more how to be your sons. Thank you for that. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your mercy and grace that your mercies are new every morning, even if we wasted the mercies from yesterday. Father, thank you that there is, there is enough grace to cover double for all our sins. <laughs> thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have dignified us to place your image upon us. And thank you, Father, that you have dignified us by making us your ambassadors, whether we're citizens of this country or any other country in this world. But thank you most of all 
that you made us citizens of your kingdom, that we are part of your family. Thank you, Father, that there is an eternal kingdom that is coming. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who alone receives glory. Father, may we be blessed today to go out into the city and to bring the kingdom of God in mercy and in grace, in righteousness and in justice for the needy, the weak, the poor, the oppressed. Father, help us by your power to be your citizens. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.